Open your Bible, if you have them, to Psalm chapter 4. And if you don't have them, go get them. We'll wait. Uh, Psalm chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, I, I hate dieting. I'm just going to say that right out of the gate. I hate dieting, but for some reason I always seem to be on one. And, I, and I, it just drives me nuts. And the older I get, the more I, guilty I feel every time I grab something like an ice cream Snickers bar or something like that, I, I feel guilty. And I know what you're thinking. You must feel a lot of guilt. And, and that's true, especially under the coronavirus. Um, perhaps, I don't know, maybe I've been eating a little more than I usually would. But I still feel guilty about it when I do it. So I, I just hate that, that feeling every time you take something that's too sweet for you or that you know is bad for you. You, you, you just know that you shouldn't do that. And they always tell you, you know, you lose more weight in the kitchen than you do in the gym. They always say things like that. But I always find it really, really difficult because, let's be honest, deep down, I desire really bad foods. I really do love thick crust pizza from Pizza Hut. Crunchy and greasy and just, it's delicious. And it's totally bad for me. And I know that it is not what I should be eating, but... I cannot help it. I absolutely love it. I desire food that's bad for me. Don't get me started on Little Debbie's. Oh man, you put a box of Little Debbie's in front of me, I can devour that. And I shouldn't. I know I shouldn't. But deep down, I really, really desire those kinds of food. And that's ultimately why it's so difficult, for me especially, to ever get to a point where I can lose weight or keep my weight in check and things like that. Now, we're coming to our passage this morning in Psalm chapter 4, and David is going to contrast the life of the godly with the life of the ungodly. And what we're going to find as we get to the end is that ultimately it's a matter of desires. Let's read our text, Psalm chapter 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how rich and deep is this text. So deep we could not possibly plumb the depths of it in all our time. Yet at the same time, I pray that you would, through your word, awaken our hearts 
I pray even now that there would be people that you would bring even watching this. That through the preaching of your word and through understanding your word, through the reading and hearing of your word, that they would come to believe. Perhaps even realize that their whole life they have pretended to believe. That you would bring them to actual real repentance right there even in their homes. Pray that you would open our hearts to obey your word, to be filled with the joy that is contained therein. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, understanding a this psalm is not without its difficulties. It's a challenging psalm, I think, and you'll notice that as you go through it, if you read, read through it and you, you pay close attention, no real context is given to the psalm itself. So we don't necessarily know exactly the context that it was written in. Last week we had this nice little title at the top that said this was written during the time when David was on the run from his son Absalom, and so we could find that scene in Scripture, and we could you know, look, look for it and, and, and see what the context of that, that particular scene was. And it, and it makes it nice for preachers, because then we can understand the context and better get a hold of what David is driving at in a particular psalm by understanding its context. And then apply it better to our congregation. And, but some psalms, you'll notice, don't necessarily play that nicely. They don't really give us that kind of context. So it can be a bit challenging to interpret sometimes. And sometimes those psalms can be abused. Sometimes too. So this happens to be one of those psalms that, that's a little bit more difficult. So there are questions you will have as you read through it and you really begin to think on it. For instance, who is David talking about to whom is David talking? He says in verse 2, O men, which we take to be a group of men somewhere plotting uh, perhaps something nefarious against him. Uh, there are translation issues that we won't really get to uh, this morning, but translation issues in the passage that, uh, that can make it even a little bit more confusing. But regardless of what is going on in David's life at the time of his writing or even regardless of who his original audience really was, this psalm has been given, as the title at the top tells us, to the choir master, and has the instruction that it is to be used with stringed instruments. And that actually turns out to be really important, and, and it's a good bit of information for us to consider, because it, it basically means that David is intentionally ambiguous about some of the events and the people that he's describing. The reason is because this psalm is to be used and sung in a general assembly in worship. And presumably, it's written in a way that everyone can relate to it. So its warnings then are going to be generally applicable. Its comforts are also going to be applicable to most people that read it, and particularly anyone that would be a child of God. Further, he's going to talk a great deal about the ungodly, and so it's going to be a rebuke to all the ungodly, not just the ungodly in David's day. So he writes it intentionally ambiguous with the intention that it's going to be sung by the congregation as they worship the Lord. And with all of that being said, 
I think there are three sections in this psalm. David is talking, obviously, throughout the psalm. But in verse 1, he's talking to the Lord. And then in verses 2, all the way through the first part of verse 6, he's talking to the ungodly. He's addressing them as if they can hear him. And then in the last part of verse 6, all the way through verse 8, he again addresses the Lord in prayer. So throughout this psalm, David also is going to make certain word choices that aren't necessarily evident in the English text, but they do indicate the difference that he's trying to draw a line of distinction between the godly, which he is a part of, and the ungodly, which these men or this plural group out there is a part of. And he's, he's making certain word choices that are going to parallel, that are going to help us see that distinction between the two. So three points that David is making here that I want you to see. And the first one is that God vindicates his children. Look at verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So David is making a plea to the Lord for the Lord to hear him. And as we'll soon find out, this ungodly horde is pursuing him in some capacity, and he is in need of the Lord's rescue. And so the psalm opens with this plea toward the Lord to, to basically give him an answer and hear him when he calls. Now, you may recall that last time we went through um, Psalm 3, I dealt a great deal with Psalm 2 and how Psalm 3 falls right on the, the heels of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 being where God uh, is saying that he's, he laughs and he holds the nations in derision as they make plans against him. And he says, look, I, I've got this. I put my king, who originally was David, but then ultimately was Jesus. I put my, my king on his holy hill. And this is how God, we're told, is going to establish his kingdom through this central king on Zion's hill. And then essentially, it's, he's going to govern the world through this king. He's going to smash them in pieces like a potter's vessel and all that kind of stuff. And then Psalm 3 follows right on its heels, and that same king is running for his life. Well, here in Psalm 4, he's now surrounded by enemies, and he's crying out for the Lord's help. And the plea is, the God of my righteousness, which means something like, the God of my vindication, the God who vindicates me. As you'll see, some translations make that pretty clear. God's making a, or David is making a plea to God who vindicates me. Now, why is he doing that? Because as we'll, we'll see, the men that are following after him are seeking after lies. They have believed lies and propaganda about him. And so even if we don't know the particular situation in David's life that this applies to, I think we might be able to relate to situations that maybe we've been in where it, it feels as though the whole world is against us and the people that are most critical are always assuming the wrong motivations about you, and they're believing lies about you. And if you haven't ever felt that way, lead anything with more than two people in it, and you, you will feel that. But David is making it clear that even in his plea, God is the one who vindicates me. No one else. God, you are the one who vindicates me. You are the God of my righteousness. Then he takes it a step further and voices the reason that he turns to the vindicating God because he has been 
his help in the past. Now, the ESV, the English Standard Version that we read on Sunday morning, that we read from and we're reading from now, it tends to be a more word-for-word translation. So it's, it's really pretty close to the original Greek or Hebrew, depending on what testament you're in. But it tends to be a more word-for-word translation. If it were a more thought-for-thought translation, so if it were a little looser and a little further away from the Hebrew, but still getting the idea of the thought that David is con- conveying here, it might sound something like, I have been in tight spots before, and you've always saved me from them. So please do it again. That's essentially what David is conveying here. David is recognizing that the Lord is not only the one who vindicates, but he has done so in David's life many times in the past. And I think as we can all sit here as Christians, probably testifying to the very same thing, God has vindicated us in our time of need or has lifted us up in our time of need. And I want you to consider two examples biblically for God's vindication, the kind of vindication that I'm really talking about here. The first is David himself. So just an example from David's life, there are a couple of instances where David is on the run from some, somebody that's wicked or evil, and he's fleeing from them. And the first is King Saul. You'll probably remember that David was to replace Saul on the throne. Saul may or may not have been exactly aware of how much David was going to replace him, but he was. And so eventually Saul wanted to kill him and was paranoid about David and began chasing him. And David spent a lot of his life on the run from Saul, avoiding his thrown spears and his attacks and his betrayal from people that were associated with Saul. And so as Saul begins to pursue David, what we see is that Saul ends up dying horrifically in battle, and the Lord exalts David to the throne over Israel. And so Uh, David is vindicated in the eyes of the nation of Israel as not being uh, uh, someone who's on the run, but instead the king of Israel and the rightful king on the throne. And then obviously what we saw last week in David's life was his son Absalom comes in later on in his reign and chases him from his own kingdom. And he's running for about a year on the road and and, uh, trying to avoid Absalom at all costs. And yet Absalom is the one that faces peril, and David is brought back to the throne. God vindicated him. Now, vindication from God does not always result in him sparing the life of the individual. It doesn't always result in success and prosperity. So the second example of God's vindication is none other than Jesus Christ. God's own Son. God incarnate, perfect in every way. Completely and totally without sin, healed the sick, raised the dead, cured the leper, gave gave sight to the blind, gave the lame the ability to walk. And roughly three and a half years into his perfect ministry, he's on a cross, lifted up and surrounded by a gaggle of pagans, Jew and Gentile, mocking him. He says he's the Savior of Israel. He can't save himself. Why don't you come down off that cross? But three days later, he was vindicated by God the Father. He was raised from the dead in the eyes of many witnesses. And God himself said about Jesus, He is my beloved Son. He's vindicated. There are many people... God vindicated in biblical history 
that are in David's past, like Moses, for example, in front of the people providing water and bread and even destruction for the people that challenged his leadership. Or, or what about Job, who, who the Lord vindicated in front of his friends and brought his friends to repentance and, brought, and, 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 and exalted Job as a righteous person who, who suffered. There are plenty of others in David's past and David's future that warrant David coming before the Lord and saying, you are the God who vindicates your children. You have rescued me in the past. Now be gracious and hear me again. And Paul reminds us in the New Testament that Christians too will be vindicated on the day of resurrection. Second point that I want you to see here as we move to verse 2 is that the ungodly are driven by sinful desires. The ungodly are driven by sinful desires. If you read through verses 2 to the first part of verse 6, you'll see that David seems to present this, how the ungodly act. He sort of kind of lays out there in a poetry sort of fashion how the ungodly act, and then he contrasts it with the actions of the godly. And it's mostly on the actions that, are, that, are, that they, they do that are completely Different. And again, we don't know exactly who is in view here in the they, the ungodly. Perhaps it's maybe the same situation that David was in in the previous psalm where he's running from Absalom. Certainly that, would, that, that context would certainly fit with a lot of what David says. You'll remember the Bible tells us that Absalom had won the hearts of the men of Israel. So it's possible he, David is, is here ta- uh, taking exception with, to the men who have been persuaded to follow Absalom. They've, they've believed lies. But whatever the specific reason for his writing, there's an I- enemy against him that he refers to in verse 2 as, O men. And we'll see them referred to again as the many in verse 6 and uh, just the plural they in verse 7. But this is clearly the opposite of the godly that we see called out in verse 3. Verse 3 brings out the godly and contrasts their actions with the, the men and the many and the they in 2, 6, and 7. So there is very clearly the ungodly and there are some pivotal differences that David is going to underscore in this psalm between the ungodly and the godly. And the first big difference is that the ungodly loves lies. They love lies. They're driven by the word of the day. It doesn't have to be true. It just needs to be juicy. It needs to make for a good story. It needs to feed their preconceived biases. We've probably all felt that pit of desire in our soul that longs for a taste of juicy gossip. They don't put the gossip magazines at the checkout register because no one buys them. They're there because we look at them and we want to read what's happening in the lives of these people. There's a uh, sense within us that we desire gospel. We probably all felt that at one point or another. And you know that, that time when someone gives you that, that bit of information about another person that at the end leaves a negative taste in your mouth toward them. That's gossip. But you know, when the feeling, when they tell, you, they tell it to you and you really want to hear that story, and perhaps you even pry it out of them to get the person and to get the context and to get, to get the situation that you were not a part of. Maybe then you even feel, once you know it, this desire to pass it on to the next person. You know that feeling of pleasure 
in the pit of your stomach when you engage in that kind of sin. We've all engaged in it. I've done it. We've all done it. The ungodly are driven by that sense of pleasure that comes from that feeling. They seek after and they love lies. But then there's the godly in verse 3. The godly desire an audience, but with who? The Creator alone. David tells us that not only has God set the godly apart for himself, but when they reach out to him in prayer, he actually hears them. He listens to them. So David is is contrasting the Lord's response to the godly versus a lack of response to the wicked. So there's there's a force here that I think is implied when David says the Lord hears when I call. I think it's the Lord hears when I call. He hears when I call. We know that because here's two words he repeats in verse 3 that he already said in verse 1. Answer me when I call and be gracious to, to me and hear my prayer. So here it's affirmed. An answer to David's prayer in verse 1 is in fact the Lord does hear when I call. And it's my desire In fact, it's the desire of the godly whom God sets apart for Himself to have an audience with the Creator alone. While the ungodly are driven by a pleasure in vain words, the godly seek after the Lord's ear rather than the audience of men. Now, what could be more encouraging to you? If you're staring down the barrel of your accusers, of people who believe lies about you, what could be more encouraging than to know that you have an audience with the creator of the universe. What's more encouraging than that? Nothing. Then we go to verse 4, and he's back to the ungodly. And there's a warning that he gives to the ungodly, but it underscores their impulsive nature. Not only do they love lies, but they're also driven by anger. And driven to lash out in anger. Driven by their emotions which have no restraint whatsoever. They're on the surface there. And the psalmist is warning them that instead of acting on impulse, you should instead sit down on your bed at night and ponder the emotion that dwells deep within your heart. And instead of acting out on your anger, you should kill it before you go to sleep. You'll remember probably Paul reiterates this in... Ephesians 4, 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Taking not only a quote from David, but then also I think the implication of what David is saying here. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Sit on your bed and dwell about it and kill it before you even go to sleep that night. So this is a rebuke to the ungodly. But then look at, verse, look at the contrast in verse 5. He commands them to essentially take up the actions of the godly. He doesn't call out the godly specifically there, but he he calls them to take up the actions of the godly by offering right sacrifices and putting their trust in the Lord the way the godly would do. So the right sacrifices that he's commanding them to do can only be done, how? If they bury the hostility that they have toward the brother that has offended them. So instead of lashing out in anger, not only burying it, but basically restoring your ability 
to make right sacrifices. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount gets to this very point in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. He says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So here is an ungodly person who is angry and driven by anger, and he is wanting to seek retribution. In David's case, it seems that these men are literally coming after David for his life. But the psalmist's words to them are, are to vindicate yourself before the Lord by offering right sacrifices. After you've sat on your bed and you've pondered your sin in your own heart. There's another parallel of, of words here. There are many actually in this verse that we'll get to in a minute, but, but one that refers back to a word we've already seen before where the ungodly need to seek the Lord for vindication. They need to offer right sacrifice. The same word there, God of my rightness. God of my vindication. The God who hears David when he calls is the same God who has already vindicated him and who will continue to vindicate him in the future. David's conscience is clean, but you ungodly need to go before the Lord and vindicate yourself in your sacrifice. Then at the beginning of verse 6, we have the ungodly depicted there as the many. And this verse, I think, can be confusing, but I think the quote should probably end at the end of good. Um, the, there are no quote marks in Hebrew, so the quote marks that are there are basically just an English translator putting them in there uh, to hopefully make something clear. And so it's really just their opinion, albeit an educated opinion, so we want to be careful about changing those kinds of things, but... Uh, I think in the end, th there's good reason that I'll show you in just a second for ending the quotation at the word good there in the first half of verse 6. I think David is basically asking this question, who do the ungodly go to for blessing? And the answer in their response there is no one. The ungodly person here is asking a question, who will show us some good? The ungodly ha person has a desire to be blessed, but has no one to turn to to ask for it. So from verse 2 to the first part of verse 6, you have David interacting with the ungodly. And he even talks to them as if they can, they can hear him. And he's essentially challenging them. Why can't you be more like the godly? You're driven by this passion for lies. You love vain words. You give ear to them. You know who gives the godly his ear? The Lord, He hears when I call. You're driven by a lust to satiate your own anger. Instead, what you should do is you should sit down on your bed and you should repent of your sins. You should think deeply about the sin that dwells in your own heart. The sin that you love so much. And you should offer sacrifices that restore and vindicate your relationship with the Lord and restore your relationship with your fellow man. And you should put your trust in Him instead like the godly do whom the Lord vindicates. You simply throw a request for blessing out there in the air, but you have no one to ask it to. So He's challenging them on the merits of their works to follow the Lord instead of seeking after their own sinful indulgences. But what's important to understand is that the pursuits of the ungodly 
are not merely bad choices. So often what we think, they're bad choices. They should just choose better things. That's not actually what David is getting at, and I think there's an undercurrent there that will tell us that. It's not merely just bad choices. It's bad desires. They don't choose vain words or to seek after vain words. They love them. It's a desire deep down in the pit of their stomach. They want it. And so they're not going to stop going after it because deep down they love it. They don't just make a choice to exercise their anger as if the problem was just bad thinking. They're motivated to the heart level to pursue anger and to give vent to it. It's a deep-seated desire to pursue anger that drives them. David tells them to really sit down. Just dwell on those emotions for a minute. Just think about those. You are driven by your desires. The problem is your desires are fleshly. But then do you ever wonder why? Why are the godly this way? Why are the godly not like that? Why are we not like that? We sometimes dabble. We sometimes desire. We sometimes recognize that, yes, I do have a desire for that, but on the whole, we're not driven by those desires. And we recognize them as sinful. Why? Why does the Lord, for instance, give the godly relief, which David says here, and provide deliverance for them, but he implies, if not right, states right outright, not the ungodly. Further, why do the godly want to serve the Lord, but the ungodly, the men, the them in the psalm would, would rather indulge their anger and pursue their lies and persist in ungodliness? David gives us an answer in the last half of verse 6 all the way to verse 8 when he turns back to the Lord in prayer, which is the last point that I want you to see. The Lord has given the godly better desires. The Lord has given the godly better desires. Look at the end of verse 6. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. I think David is speaking here, um, and, and not, not the ungodly. He quotes the ungodly in verse 6, at the first part of verse 6. But then I think David is speaking here in a prayer to the Lord. He turns back to prayer of the Lord. And I think the reason for that is not only because he prays to the Lord at the beginning, he prays to the Lord at the end, and in the middle is him talking to the ungodly. That's one part of it. But then I think also the end of verse 6 also fits very well with, the, with verse 7 and fits with the result of what happens to an individual when the Lord is putting the light of his face on the person. And we see this echoed throughout the Psalms. We also see this in the Bible as a whole. And if you have a Bible with cross-references that kind of tell, give you some clues as far as phrases, some of you might see referenced next to uh, that phrase, the light of your face, you might see some of these references from Psalms. So you got Psalm 89, 15 to 16. It says this, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all day and in your righteousness as are exalted. The ones who receive the light of his face are the worshipers, 
What about Psalm 31, 16? Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Crying out for salvation. His shining, the light of his face on me is, is tantamount to salvation. But what about Psalm 80, verse 3? Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. That's what it means. To have God's face shine upon you is another way of saying He has granted you salvation. This is a person that realizes that all the other ways are bankrupt and the only way to find true pleasure is in the Lord. And perhaps David is here at the end of 6 praying on behalf of the ungodly. Let your face shine upon them too so that they may be saved and repent. But regardless, I think David is communicating here and his answer to all of those whys is found then in verse 7. Why do the godly seek after the Lord and the ungodly pursue sinful desires instead? He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. You know what it's like to have grain and wine abound. What he means there, lots of food, lots of alcohol, their bellies are full, and they're continuing to get drunk, and they're happy, and they're merry. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die is their sort of mantra that they go on about. And he says, you, Lord, have put more joy in my heart than they when their wine and grain abound. All of that merrymaking that they do, all of that happiness that they have, pales by comparison to what you've given to me. The Lord has put that joy there in the heart of the godly. The Apostle Paul perhaps picks up on this very idea in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 6. He says this in verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now go to verse 6 there. It says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in what? The face of Jesus Christ. Here's the image of God, the face of Jesus Christ, shining on the hearts of all believers. So the gospel message is that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But while the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, the very same creator of the world, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, let there be light. Genesis chapter 1. He has also given us the new creation. He has, shined, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That same light that David is asking for in Psalm 4 that is repeated throughout the Psalms is now repeated here in Paul, but with one key change that it's specific. It's not just the light of the glory of God, but it is in the face of Jesus Christ. The same joy that David has in his heart, the same face that he's seeking God to show him, Paul says, 
He has shown His children in the person of Jesus Christ on this side of the cross. What that means is that some hear the gospel and they'll shun it. Turn away from it. I don't want to hear that. You've stepped over, over, overboard. You've stepped across boundaries. I don't want to hear that. Get away from me. Some may initially be interested in it and be inclined to follow after it and then fall away. But some, upon hearing the gospel proclaimed, God removes the blindfold and reveals to them His glory in the face of Christ. And they believe. David closes the psalm with three more repeated words here. One in verse 7 and two in verse 8. He says, God has placed joy in the heart of the godly, while the ungodly has sin in his heart that he needs to ponder. God has placed joy in the heart of the believer, God, and, and there's sin in the heart of the unbeliever that he needs to ponder and repent from. The ungodly is lying on his bed, while the godly is, uh, yeah, the ungodly needs to lie in his bed and ponder, while the godly is lying down and sleeping. The, word, the noun bed there is the same root as the verb lying. So when you sing this and when you say this out loud, you hear that same root. It's meant to be auditory. So we have bed and lying, which doesn't seem like a parallel words, but the roots are the same. And they'll be magnified when you're saying this out loud because you hear that same word come back to you again. The ungodly, he says one more time, need to trust, there's the verb, need to trust, while the godly dwell in safety. There's the noun. So the trust verb and the noun safety, same root word again. Now the difference in all of that, the difference in the godly and the ungodly, is that the Lord makes me dwell in safety. The Lord put more joy in my heart. He did it to me, to you. The Lord has been the principal actor here that has resulted in your worship and confidence and ultimately your peace. If you don't understand that salvation is first and foremost a heart-level change that God did in you, then I'm afraid you've merely taken other pagan religions that broadcast works righteousness and you've slapped the label Christian on it. It's not the gospel. The gospel is while we were dead. He raised us up. It's not while we were drowning in the ocean, he threw us a life preserver, we had to reach out and take it. That's not what it says. It's while we were dead in the bottom of the ocean, he went down and got us and revived us. That's the gospel. There's so many people that come to church services and they listen to sermons as if the preacher is supposed to tell them what to do and what not to do. 
Principally, his job is to lay out before them what to do and what not to do. Give me a list. That's his primary reason for preaching. Give me the steps I need to have a better marriage. Give me the steps that I need to take to be a better parent. And then the evaluation of the sermon is based on how well the preacher did at this or that. If you pay attention, you'll see sermons like this with the title starting with How To, Ten Secrets To. And the expectation is that the audience that's there will walk out, will hear the requisite information while they're there, and they'll, they'll leave, they'll walk out. And if they simply apply the better choices to the situations that they are presented with that week, then they'll be a better husband, they'll be a better parent, you'll be a better Christian. You just got to make different choices. But what you have to understand is that the choices that those sermons are preaching to are symptoms of a heart that is deeply unsatisfied with Christ. They're symptoms. So it's tantamount to you going into a doctor with this pain in your shoulder that just won't go away and it feels like a knife going in. You can't move your arm. You've got to keep it really still. and You can't move it in any way. And he says, take some ibuprofen. So you take some ibuprofen and it, pain goes away when you take the ibuprofen. But then some hours later it comes right back and it, it's just as serious as it was before the ibuprofen went in. And you go back to him and, and the meds just keep getting stronger. Next time it's not ibuprofen, not two ibuprofen, it's four. And after that it's not ibuprofen anymore, it's a more serious drug. And then on to narcotics to deal with the pain. At what point do you start to realize, maybe I have something wrong with my shoulder that pain meds can't treat. Maybe the pain is the symptom of the bad shoulder. On the other hand... If the shoulder is cut open and fixed, the pain in the shoulder then goes away. In a similar way, it won't suffice for us to fix our behavior. Parents, your kids are guilty of this all the time. We want our kids to obey. We want them to be moral, upstanding citizens. And so we correct their behavior. Don't embarrass me. I want you to behave rightly. I want other people to think you're such a well-behaved child. That's not teaching them the gospel. The behavior will take care of itself when the heart is renewed by the joy that only the Lord can provide. There must be a joy in our hearts for Christ. don't just want my kid to stop hitting his brother or to stop hitting her brother stop hitting his sister. I don't just want him to do that. I want him to want to not do it. I can't give him a new heart. I can pray for him. I can explain to him how much grief and pain that causes the Lord when he does that, how much it causes his brother or sister can't change his heart. Only the Lord can put that joy in there. 
But if that's in there, and if it's ever increasing, then the marriages improve, the parenting improves, the child comes to repentance. That's not to say you don't need people pointing out better ways to do this or that, but all the biblical counseling in the world is not going to matter if you don't first have a joy in Christ that motivates you toward those things. It's a desire issue. This is why boredom in corporate worship is much more serious than what we initially think of it. And it's a sign of something much more serious going on in the heart. If singing to God, praying to God, reading the Word of God, growing an understanding of the Word of God is boring to you, that is unbelief. That's why it's boring. It's unbelief. On the contrary, or perhaps along with that, I should say, porn addiction that you keep going back to, the gossiping, the loving of vain words, the anger that feels so good to vent, isn't merely a matter, matter of bad choices. Well, if I, if I just would, would not make those bad choices at night, if I just made some better choices in choosing my friends or whatever, it's what I'm tempted to do when my waistline expands. I chose pizza tonight instead of eating sensibly like a nice low-calorie salad. But the problem is deeper than that. I love pizza, and I hate salad, and that's why I went for the pizza. That's why I chose it, and that's why I keep going back to it. The reason you cannot have peace if you are ungodly is because only the Lord can give that to you. Only He can supply that. What you have is an affection problem, not a choice problem. You are pleased by sinful things more than you're pleased by the things of Christ. Because the only way to rest in peace is for the Lord to actually grant it to you. So then, for the ungodly, your only hope is to pray the Lord would give you a joy in your heart for Him. He has to change your appetite. That's it. So you sit there on your bed. Think about the sin in your own heart. Open his word and read it until you have the joy that only he can supply. Beg him for it. To the godly who struggle, sin, know, love the Lord. Same is true for us. We beg Him in our prayers, please increase my joy for you, knowing that if my joy for Him increases more than they when their wine and grain abound, 
sinful indulgences that I have will dissipate. So, let us give ourselves to the regular means of grace that He has given to us. His Word, prayer, song, corporate worship, the Lord's Supper, godly relationships, the list goes on. And as our desire grows for the spiritually enriching food that He provides, we will see the desire of sinful things dissipate as the desire for Christ grows. So we begin to feed the Spirit that He has put within us starve the dog of the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for joy. We pray that you would, Lord, increase the joy in our hearts. Increase our capacity for worship. Increase our desire for your word. We don't mistrust your word because we don't understand it. We mistrust your word because we mistrust you. And we mistrust you because our joy is insufficient. We know we are driven by pleasures. And your word tells us that's not bad. It's the direction of the pleasures. So we pray you would direct them to you. Fix them on you. Nothing else would satisfy. In Jesus' name.